Welcome to The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we've invited two amazing co-founders from Reason for Hope onto the Vine to share with us their work with psychedelic medicines and how they are advocating and getting laws passed to allow legal access for clinicians and patients. Reason for Hope's mission is to prevent deaths of despair by helping to develop and advocate for the policy and legal reforms needed to facilitate safe and affordable access to psychedelic medicines and assisted therapies. Their team of fierce leaders bring a strategic, pragmatic, and bipartisan approach to their work. Brett Waters is an antitrust litigation attorney at Winston & Strawn LLP and the co-founder and executive director of Reason for Hope. Brett served as the policy and advocacy chair for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention New York City chapter before starting Reason for Hope, and he's played a substantial role drafting psychedelic legislation in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New York, and preparing briefings for the White House Domestic Policy Council, HHS, and members of Congress on the need for an interagency psychedelic task force. Dr. Avril is an associate professor at Baylor College of Medicine and a research psychologist at the VA with ongoing affiliations at Yale and the National Center for PTSD. She has served as a subject matter expert in Texas for House Bill 1802, which funded a clinical study of psilocybin to treat PTSD in veterans. After linking up with Brett to co-found Reason for Hope, she has briefed several members of Congress and testified or served as a subject matter expert in Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Maine. We're so excited to welcome Brett and Dr. Avril to the show. Yes, thank you both for joining us today. We know that each of you have a personal story tied to why Reason for Hope is so important to you. And Brett, I wondered if you could please uh, tell us what led you to start Reason for Hope, and then we'll ask Dr. Avril. Sure. Uh, thank you both so much for, for having us on uh, for Mental Health Awareness Month. It, it means a lot to us both. And as you mentioned, we, we do uh, you know, each have personal reasons that have kind of led us to this place. Uh, for me, it was the loss of my mom to suicide in 2018. And before that, uh, we lost her father, my grandfather, to suicide when I was young. Uh, my family didn't tell me that uh, he died by suicide at that time. I, I actually didn't find out uh, for several years. Uh, you know, my family just didn't talk about it. Uh, my grandmother actually passed away shortly uh, before my mom took her own life. And, and really kind of while she was alive, it was just one of those things that the family like did not want to discuss my grandfather. I still feels like a lot of unknown uh, about my family history because of, uh, you know, that kind of cultural stigma and silence surrounding suicide. And so I, I have really been doing what I can to change that um, since losing my mom. And and that started with uh, work with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, uh, New York City chapter. Uh, I, you know, fundraised money for AFSP and uh, started 
as the policy and advocacy director of the New York City chapter and was, you know, starting to get engaged in work surrounding psychedelic medicine. I, I had had my own experience with psilocybin in college, just taking it recreationally. And, and it really uh, had a life-changing experience for me in a, in a very unexpected way. Uh, it was an eating disorder that I dealt with since a young age before, you know, before I can even remember, it's, it's just been something I dealt with my whole life, uh, essentially like a food phobia. If I tried new foods, I would, you know, basically gag it up immediately. Couldn't really uh, eat anything beyond like the basic childhood food still. And it was, you know, this kind of socially debilitating uh, situation would, would avoid social interactions for a long time. And, and then this uh, experience with psilocybin just like, it kind of made the anxiety go away about that for, I would say around six months where all of a sudden it was like, I could just eat like normal foods. <laughs> it was uh, really hard to explain or understand. And, and unfortunately I, you know, didn't really look into it. Uh, you know, why that was further. My parents knew, you know, people who I had the experience with, like could see the change, but it, uh, otherwise, you know, I, I just kind of, didn't really think about it that much afterwards. And, and that's a big regret that I live with uh, after what happened to my mom. And, uh, you know, I come across the research in this space as I'm doing my work with AFSP. And, uh, you know, I decided to go out and start Reason for Hope so I could really focus on this area that uh, is, you know, psychedelic medicine and assist therapies because there are uh, just so much potential and, and promise here. And uh, there's so much flawed in the existing system of, of mental health care, particularly in, in the medications that are prescribed for, you know, all sorts of mental health conditions. And uh, that is, you know, why I felt that this, this area really has the most potential and the most problematic, uh, you know, legal roadblocks in the way that, that needed some, uh, you know, needed full attention really. Uh, so started Reason for Hope to, to really focus in on this area. And, uh, you know, was fortunate to link up with a, a number of great people to, to help make it happen. And, and Dr. Averill is, is one of them. Thank you so much for sharing, Brett. I knew immediately when I met you that I wanted to be a part of what you were building and, and know that the work that you're doing is going to impact so many people. And so we're just so grateful to have you here today. And Dr. Averill, we would love to hear from you and what led you to become a co-founder at Reason for Hope. Sure. Thank you. And um, ditto to what Brett said. Thank you so much for having us on. It's, it's really an honor to be here and, you know, to, to share the space. I think, you know, you guys are also doing incredibly important work. Um, for, for me, you know, my, my story is very similar to Brett's and also entirely different. <laughs> um, but um you know, in, in terms of psychedelic medicine, I, I, in many ways, you know, often say I've kind of been doing this work my whole life or, or interested in it my whole life. Um, both my my dad and my uncle, my, my dad's brother, um, served in Vietnam. My uncle died in country and my dad died by suicide when I was three years old after struggling for years with ineffective treatments. And I do not remember my dad at all, um, but I just grew up very aware of the effects of 
stress, trauma, war, you know, on on the individual who experiences that themselves, but also on the family, the friends, the community who who in so many ways experience all of those things in tandem, whether whether their loved one is around or has, you know, has died by suicide or or otherwise. Um, and, you know, really was from from a very young age, just sort of interested academically, you know, I'm, I'm a self-proclaimed nerd and interested academically at, at a very young age in, in what the effects of stress and trauma are, but also importantly, how we treat stress and trauma. You know, and absolutely, I, I got into this, you know, as how, how do I help other little girls to, to not grow up without a parent? How do I help other people who are struggling to not have this same sort of experience. And I, it, in parallel to that experience, you know, my, my mom was always very open, very honest about things. And, and I grew up hearing stories from her and some of my parents' friends about using psychedelic medicine. Um, and, and I was struck by how different those stories were than hearing you know, some of my cousins hearing older kids in high school talk about using alcohol, using cocaine, using other drugs, that it was never about getting high. It was never about having fun. Um, but it was about trying to connect or or reconnect with oneself, with with each other, with the world, with the divine in some shape or form you know, for folks and, and certainly for, for my parents and some of their friends, it was very much about trying to, to sort of find meaning and purpose to try to make sense of what for them seemed like a senseless war. Um, and, you know, I sort of had that floating around in my head and remember probably sixth or seventh grade, you know, thinking, why, why aren't we harnessing these sorts of things if people are using them? You know, whether we're talking about psychedelic medicine or, or anything else, people use drugs, alcohol, food, sex, any of these things, because in some shape or form, they work briefly. But again, psychedelic medicine seemed like it was just such a different story. The context was different. The outcomes were different. The motivations were different. And so as I, you know, went, went through college and graduate school, um, you know, I, it wasn't sort of mainstream again. It wasn't quite fully appropriate, if you will, or safe to say really, oh, yeah, I desperately want to be studying psychedelic medicine. So, so really early on was focusing kind of generally on trauma response, PTSD, suicidality, these kinds of things. Um, and then did my fellowship at Yale and the National Center for PTSD and really got involved in ketamine research initially. I think there's some unwritten law that if you're at Yale, you have to do ketamine research. Um, <laughs> but and I really like I really like the ketamine research. Um, I think ketamine is also a very important and, and very useful med- medication. Um, and then got, had the opportunity to really start getting involved in psychedelic medicine research, um, you know, as it was becoming much more mainstream, a lot of groups were starting to do this work. Um, and, you know, again, it is just sort of solidifying further those stories I heard growing up that people, 
who were struggling, people who were not finding benefit from our traditionally available interventions, the people who have been through the gauntlet of 12 different SSRI prescriptions, 10 different therapists, some people have tried ECT, some people have tried, you know, all of these things. And sometimes, honestly, all too often are left feeling worse than they did to start with. Um, that, that there's just so much hope and so much potential in psychedelic medicine and that we're seeing, you know, this sort of reemergence of research in this area and that all of it is saying there is something so important here. There is something, you know, something so magical here and I know as a scientist I'm not supposed to say magical because how do we measure <laughs> magic but but the stories that you hear and of course these are not you know these are not the golden bullet not a one-size-fits-all they're not gonna work for everyone they're not gonna be safe for everyone but it seems so many people who even have a mediocre experience to psychedelic medicine and assisted therapies We'll talk about these sometimes as one of the most important experiences of their life, one of the most meaningful experiences of their life. And I have been professionally involved in mental health care as a clinician and a researcher for many, many years. And personally, I have been associated with many, many people across my lifetime, you know, struggling with mental health. I have never heard anyone say taking an SSRI was one of the most important experiences <laughs> of my life. <laughs> never. That's right. Um, you know, and I think, I think for me, the piece that is so exciting and what I find so important about Reason for Hope, so important about the work that you guys are doing, that so many groups are doing is I think in mental health care, we often not nearly often enough, but often are able to keep people alive. And that is a huge win. I absolutely a huge win. I will not minimize that. But there is such a vast difference between keeping someone alive, keeping someone at that level where they kind of sometimes a bit begrudgingly feel like they can tolerate living another day to people who feel like they are building meaning and purpose and building a life that they truly want to be living. Those are such different conversations. Those are such different existences. And I think, again, not in every case, certainly, but so many people have an experience with psychedelic medicine and seem like that is the path that they get on. You know, again, it's not the magic bullet. The people have to do a lot of work to get there, to build on the initial experience. But that is so worth pursuing. Um, you know, and I, I love I love that kind of serendipitously Brett and I were connected. I love the other people that also <laughs> serendipitously we were kind of connected to. And the group, you know, and I think that reason for hope has has a second part of that name. Um, reason for hope 
and hope for a reason, um, which I think is such an important follow-up statement, you know, especially for us as we do this policy and advocacy work, that there is so much hope, there is so much potential to really make a difference in mental health care. And it absolutely does require that people, people in, you know, decision-making positions exercise reason, (laughs) move Mm -hmm. beyond, move beyond the stigma, move beyond the judgment, move beyond preconceived notions that often are not necessarily based in the evidence, based in current research, based in any of these things. Um, And I've been incredibly pleasantly surprised that we seem to be seeing so much more of that than I thought we would, that there is thus far really impressive bipartisan support in most all of the initiatives that we've been involved with. And yeah, I, I certainly have reason for hope as, as we've been seeing things progress and it's, it's just really exciting. Um, and there's so many more things I could say and ramble on, but I will leave it there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and we appreciate all the information. So Brett, um, you have such an impressive leadership team. And as far as we know, you've done all of this work on a volunteer basis uh, without fundraising or spending. So can you tell us more about who's behind Reason of Hope or Reason for Hope and how you have um, you know, gathered this team on a voluntary basis? Sure. So Dr. Averill, as, as you just heard, is an incredibly impressive speaker and human being, and uh, so grateful for uh, her involvement here. Um, it, we actually connected after she testified in the Texas hearing uh, for HB 1802. So I watched the hearing uh, online and, and just reached out to, to everyone, uh, you know, to Dr. Averill, to the Capones, uh, to, to Andrew Marr. And, and, you know, that's how I first connected with, uh, you know, this team. And it was, uh, you know, very quick, uh, you know, for Dr. Averill and I, like, just, I think coming from a shared background and, and even though she is, was, you know, professionally involved in this work also from, you know, some areas of, uh, I guess, professional communities that, still are subject more to look at this in a, you know, stigmatizing way and, and feeling a need to help overcome that. And, and so we definitely just had a lot of, uh, you know, kind of shared motivations and, and background and, and beliefs behind this and just immediately clicked and started, uh, you know, started asking Dr. Averill to attend meetings uh, for legislation that we were working on in Pennsylvania and that is really kind of how we got started was just on a very informal basis with Dr. Averill serving as a subject matter expert. Uh, the, the other uh, co-founder here are uh, Lieutenant General uh, Martin Steele, uh, who's a retired three-star Lieutenant General in the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, he was a combat veteran Vietnam, uh, very impressive, you know, military record and, 
served on the Commission on Care during the Obama administration. Uh, he was nominated by Mitch McConnell. He uh, has, you know, bipartisan appeal and, and credentials from from people at uh, you know the federal level and and also in Florida where he's based and uh, you know has a long history in advocating for the VA really to adopt more innovative mental health treatments. So not just psychedelics, but uh, things like hyperbaric oxygen chambers and, and really trying to, to push mental health care forward uh, for veterans. And so, you know, this is an area that I, I remember when I first contacted him uh, about getting involved and, and I had been uh, introduced to him by a family friend, you know, we had a great conversation. He told me about his, you know, his work, but I, I will never forget his kind of, you know, I've been here for, you know, I've been doing this for 30 plus years and it's always in this space, particularly like one step forward, three steps back. Like it just, you know, it's very frustrating. I love like to see your enthusiasm about it, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of do what I can. And, and that's kind of where it started. And when we started to pick up some more bipartisan support and, and he saw the, the movement that, you know, we started making and, and I think he, you know, agreed to come into that kind of first meeting and, and see the way we were able to change some minds on, you know, uh, both Republican and Democratic offices. It, it really quickly escalated to now he is every day, <laughs> you know, every meeting. And so that's, that's what, you know, uh, kind of led us to, to formally, you know, starting Reason for Hope and, uh, Jesse McLaughlin, uh, a former state representative in Connecticut, uh, has been another person who's played a, a crucial role in, in the, the day-to-day of, of our work, and, and particularly in, in Connecticut. Uh, and then finally, uh, Dr. Stephen Zanakis, uh, who is a retired brigadier general in the Army, uh, and... A, a psychiatrist who we actually met because we were working on pretty similar plans at the federal level. And so it was sort of just by uh, coincidence that, that we were both working on a navigating the bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy, uh, trying to get an interagency task force started. Uh, this was shortly after uh, Dr. Averill, uh, General Steele and I, uh, along with Andrew Marr, who I mentioned before, who testified in Texas, and, and Ethan Abend, a retired NYPD officer, uh, we had a briefing with the White House Domestic Policy Council. Uh, this was one of our proposals was was to form this interagency task force and and a public private partnership with stakeholders, uh, feeling that that we really need to bring a lot of different expertise into the discussion because there's just not that much of it that exists in the government right now. Uh, there happens to be one person who has a lot of expertise who we had not met until after this, uh, along with Dr. Sinakis, and they were working on a similar, uh, you know, plan at the, uh, within HHS. And that is how we kind of linked up with him and, and really got him involved in the, in the day to day. And, and that's, you know, 
the the work we've really been doing over the last year has been focused on on you know not just the state legislation but uh, getting the federal government engaged in this effort. Uh, so we're hopeful that we will you know get a formal update on that soon. But that is uh, that's yeah kind of how we all came together in a very convoluted way, and it has been purely volunteer for the last year. Uh, but I will you know. Uh, say that I recognize that we are in a privileged, fortunate position that, you know, I'm an attorney. I We don't have to hire attorneys to write legislation, do things like that for us because I, you know, do myself. So my firm, you know, I, I thank Winston and Strawn for allowing me uh, a lot of time to do pro bono work and, and really, you know, get done uh, the work that I need to in this space. And, and so that is, you know, like time donated essentially to, to this effort. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that and, and all of the expertise that, that we, you know, collectively have and, and people being willing to donate their time for this is, uh, you know, I incredibly appreciative of it. So and yeah, it sounds, you said coincidence, but I don't believe any of this is coincidence. I truly believe it was serendipity for everyone to come together because I, I kind of watched this unfold when we had become friends and saw how quickly this team formed. And I truly believe that it's because everyone does have the same mission and is looking to do the same thing. And I'm just, the, the team that you've built is just so incredible. And I, I'm just so impressed with that because really when you're talking about the expertise, we know that that's the way to really change minds. We need to have the experts speaking on this topic. So Dr. Averill, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit more about being a subject matter expert um, in these states and what that's been like. Sure. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been really interesting. I, you know, (laughs) several, maybe several months ago, I had, um, I had a friend say like, oh, have you ever thought about being in being in politics and I was like oh no I don't think so but then one of my other friends sitting there was like you are in politics like what have you been doing the last year I was like oh um but no I you know I think that something something that I have always been you know I I think gifted with um is that I at least I like to think um that I am a good storyteller um, and that I can talk about science in a way that is relatable and understandable. Um, And I will freely admit that part of that is that some of the nitty gritty details of the science, I also don't understand them all that well to talk about them, but um, I I don't believe that. (laughs) I think, I think that's something that really served us, you know, and as we think about expanding out, um, you know, I, I don't at all say this in, in offense to any of my colleagues, but, but certainly likely we all know scientists who, who are incredibly brilliant and can talk about things that scientists can understand but the non-scientists are sort of like, have no idea what you've just said. Um, but I do think, you know, I think, I think much of my job, whether, whether in my research job, writing a, writing a paper for publication, writing a grant, um, you know, applying for some sort of award, 
And certainly in this work, the policy and advocacy is storytelling. You have to be an effective storyteller. I might have the most important information in the world for you, but if I cannot relate that in a way that you can connect with or that you care about, you're you're checked out. You're not listening anymore. Um, you know, and I think certainly for Texas, um, you know, Brett mentioned the House Bill 1802 that that I, Andrew Mark, the Capones, um, others were really involved in. You know, the I would say if people if people have the opportunity to listen to the House testimony, it was incredibly powerful and an incredible showmanship of storytelling. Um, I think also, though, that we have, you know, Brad and I and our team have talked about this a lot, that we have a very unique and I think um, unfortunate, really, um, moment in our history right now. But but there is a very much a silver lining to where we are. And that is that I, I think we are facing a mental health crisis unlike anything we have dealt with before. Um, <clears throat> You know, being being 20 years into the, well, over 20 years now, um, into the, you know, sort of post 9-11 wars, 20 years of sustained combat, 20 veterans dying a day by suicide for, for our military, for our military families, for our veteran families, that has been hugely impactful. And, and for our country, for our world, you know, it is, it's not even... You know, just us, of course, that are impacted by that. And, you know, that that we have a suicide epidemic, we have an opioid epidemic. And this was baseline for our country before we found ourselves now two years in to this globally shared stressor and trauma of the COVID pandemic and all of the myriad of mental health concerns that that has either brought on or exacerbated. You know, we're years into very heightened social, civil, political unrest. And and I think in all of that, that there is not really anyone who is unaffected at this point. If you happen to not be affected yourself personally, struggling with a bit of depression, anxiety, demoralization, something... I would say count yourself incredibly lucky. Um, and I would assume that people in your life, you know, people in, in all of our lives are struggling, are struggling significantly. And I think that we are far past the point that, you know, that, that really anyone can sit at a table and say, no, we're good. We're good with the mental health interventions we have. We definitely don't need to explore anything further. We're good where we are. Um, you know, and I think that I think that we've seen that, that that testifying, you know, I I think in Texas I certainly had apprehension. I thought I think all of the Texas teams sort of thought, we'll make a little headway this year and then we'll go back next year. And um <clears throat> I think, you know, though that as a nation, and, and I think as a world, we are desperate for new things. 
you know, I think, I, I think absolutely, again, I, I do not want to minimize the available interventions. SSRIs, talk therapy, anxiolytics, all of these things are critical interventions. And for many people, they do work well. Unfortunately, though, for the majority of individuals, they are left struggling with symptoms. They are left struggling with, with lives that, that don't feel that fulfilling, that don't feel like they really want to be living them. Um, you know, and I think, I think in testifying, just talking about the potential, talking about the reality of what for many people SSRIs are, and the reality of what there may be in psychedelic medicine and assisted therapies um, has been has been very interesting and and again, I think pleasantly surprising that people are very open to that. I think even individuals who who may have reservations due to political views due to religious views, due to a misunderstanding of, you know, what it is we're talking about, any of these things um, seem to be very interested. They want to know more. They want to know what the research says. They want to hear from people. And I think certainly, you know, Brett mentioned two of our, our very close colleagues and, and dear friends, Andrew Marr and, and Ethan Eben, who, who their stories are just incredible and you know their stories are both so so unique to them and also the story of so many people in this country and across the world and and again it's just it's i think nearly impossible to sit and hear those gentlemen or any of the you know myriad of other folks who may share a story and and again say yeah we we need to keep these you know we we definitely don't want to pursue this we don't need people to be able to access this um and and I think you know we're seeing this shift where where the way the way MDMA and psilocybin are being, you know, considered by the FDA um, really is a paradigm shift in how we consider mental health care. These are very intensive treatments. They require a lot of staff support, physician, therapist, facilitator support. Um, you know, and it, it, it is a big ask. It is not, there are not easy answers here when we think about how do we scale these up? How do we actually provide these to our citizens in numbers that are going to be really meaningful, in numbers that are going to anywhere approach what we need them to? Um, you know, and I think that's where a lot of the conversations are at this point is how do we do this effectively? Certainly, that's a lot of what Reason for Hope is doing and working with folks, you know, at the state level and the federal level is, is thinking about how do we do this in a way specifically that supports safe, responsible, ethical, accessible, and equitable use. That, you know, those are the other big questions. And, and I think people are interested and open to those conversations. Um, and in testifying, I, 
I really try to balance the presentation of what the research says, what the literature says, you know, presenting the science in, in very relatable ways, presenting the limitations of our current interventions, but also talking, you know, really talking about what what the reality is, what the what the challenges will be, either in the facilitator training, in the scalability, in the access and equity, thinking about insurance payers. You know, Brett certainly is much more an expert on kind of the patent side of things than than I am. I mean, you know, those sorts of things also. How do we sort of protect from wildly broad patents? How do we protect the indigenous communities and the sacred practices? You know, I think that's something so unique about psychedelic medicine also, particularly psilocybin, not as much MDMA, but, you know, certainly psilocybin and some of the other compounds that are now starting to be studied, at least in very early stages. These are not new interventions. These are not new medicines. These are not things, you know, that some pharma company just (laughs) developed in a lab somewhere within the last few years that you know psilocybin has been used for millennia across the world and how do we protect that history and how do we protect mm-hmm. that practice going forward while westernizing it and incorporating it into the healthcare system and these sorts of things which are again really big not easily answered questions and require intention require reason (laughs) um Mm -hmm. so yeah i i hope that i sort of answered that question i think i no no you you did and it's all so important um and so i'm wondering brett in in brief like okay you're working at the state level so that so what's the the mission there is to uh, give access or um, to for states to allow research, and then you know how far off are we at the federal level on MDMA and psilocybin? Are we a year off? Are we two? Or are we ten for FDA approval? So. Uh, for for MDMA, I mean, I think the, the expectation has been that it will be by the end of 2023, uh, and and for psilocybin by maybe early late 24, or early 25. But uh, what we're trying to do right now, and, and what we just did in Connecticut, is is pass a pilot program bill that will ultimately provide a you know temporary regulatory system and mechanism for funding patients to receive care and you know funding uh, providers to go through the process of getting the FDA and IRB approvals needed to provide expanded access. And, mm-hmm. and I don't want to go too much into the weeds of how burdensome it is, but uh, expanded access is, is a program that already exists under federal law. So this is not, you know, we're not technically legalizing anything through Connecticut's pilot program. What we're doing is is setting up a mechanism of shared resources as particularly the administrative burden and a way to uh, harmonize protocols and collect meaningful data and real world evidence uh, while getting people, 
you know, treatment that, uh, especially, you know, people who really can't afford to wait for FDA approval, that they've tried everything, they're, they're really struggling. And it's also a way to try to get treatment to people who have more complex comorbidities that uh, are often excluded from clinical trials. Uh, there are people who often are, you know, we know that the, the numbers in not just psychedelic medicine, but in clinical trials generally are, are heavily, you know, white male skewed. And, and we are really the purpose of this system is to try to get a more diverse set of patients treated. Uh, you know, people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford this, especially without insurance coverage, uh, you know, before FDA approval. And so what, you know, what Connecticut is doing is really a federal and state sort of combined process where we're going to have to take this protocol and expanded access, you know, applications to the FDA. And, and I'm, you know, our hope is that this is just going to be one of many that we're going to start setting up these pilot programs all throughout the country and, and that will collect valuable information, uh, collect valuable data that will then feed into guidelines for how the practice around the therapies will actually work, you know, how, uh, you know, what are the, the ethical guidelines, what are best practices for the actual type of therapy that's used. And, and a lot of this has not been very, you know, closely studied yet. And it's not easy to, you know, or would be very, and would be very expensive to study in a sort of uh, traditional clinical trial format. So we are, you know, going to need a lot more data. Um, and it's, it's, you know, going to, we're going to need a lot more patients to, to be treated and, and it's going to, you know, take some time, but ultimately, you know, we, we hope that this will help inform uh, guidelines at the federal level. And, and the other part of what the Connecticut bill did is it then has mechanisms in place to streamline when FDA approval does come, that it will automatically reschedule these drugs and automatically consider adopting the federal guidelines that do get issued and sets up an advisory board to, you know, take a look at that and say, okay, well, for Connecticut, you know, maybe we need to do this a little bit differently. And so it's not, you know, it wouldn't be mandatory to follow, you know, what the federal government says is the best way to go about regulating this. It would provide flexibility for the state to, to have, you know, more say, and then also continuing, uh, oversight through these advisory boards that that can make ongoing recommendations because again this is so new we're going to need to keep updating it and so rems through the fda uh is is really not the most effective way to regulate this going forward at least not alone uh you know we're it's going to need to be a combination of that hopefully the least restrictive manner possible with more state and local oversight into how uh the the protocols are, are done and, you know, to ensure that, you know, everything's being done safely, uh, ethically, and, and that there are systems for reporting and accountability. So that's, you know, it's going to be really a federal state combined, uh, you know, collaborative effort. Thank you. That, that was a really good explanation. One of the best I've heard so far that I think possibly I can repeat to someone. <laughs> I will <laughs> do it a few times. Um, but uh, that's very exciting. 
It's very exciting. And, you know, as happy as I am for Connecticut, you know, I live in Pennsylvania. So, you know, I really care about what's going to be happening in my home state. And we're really excited that on um, Wednesday, June 8th, we have a press conference scheduled in the main rotunda of our Capitol building for a Pennsylvania Psychedelic Education Day um, with a collaborative group under the Center for Psychedelic Education, which I'm really excited. Brett, I believe you'll be speaking at that. Um, And we're really hoping that maybe Maybe Pennsylvania could even follow in the footsteps of Connecticut and was wondering, you know, if you want to share anything about where Pennsylvania is at or where we might be headed um, in my home state. Sure. So, yeah, Pennsylvania, I, I think we're all really excited about the role that Pennsylvania uh, is has already played in this effort and will continue to do moving forward. Uh, the bill that we had introduced this past year to try to get research done on natural psilocybin mushrooms instead of the synthetic, which is how what's used in clinical trials. Uh, and, and really, I think in a state like Pennsylvania, uh, mushroom capital of the world, there's a lot of interest in, in the natural uh, mushrooms and, and like what local farmers may be able to do. It, it could be very important for local commerce, you know, uh, the potential for for this to come out through the FDA and and you know the way people I think had been envisioning it for for several years the, you know a lot of concern over over the cost insurance coverage and and what happens if it's too expensive then it's just going to drive underground use people you know once it has FDA approval people are going to think okay well now I'm just going to go do mushrooms so like it's pretty important to have some research done on you know what how it should be cultivated uh dose being able to know how this can be used in a more controlled setting. And, and there's, you know, a lot of different research that can be done on that front that hasn't been, you know, done in this formal capacity so far. And, and the, the bill got a lot of bipartisan support in Pennsylvania very quickly. Uh, you know, it, it ran into to a couple of, of roadblocks that, you know, had nothing to do with the political support, but really the uh, ability for the administration, uh, of the Department of Health to, to have the resources to help operate this this program. And so now, uh, you know, I'm excited that there, I think there will be announcements soon that the the bill, you know, we learned is, is not going to need to go forward, that somebody is, is close to being able to do this research, uh, get the, already have the approvals. Uh, so we should learn more on that front soon. And, and so instead plan to, for next session, you know, I, I think the hope is to educate people and, uh, you know, prepare for legislation similar to Connecticut in, in Pennsylvania. So that, that's really going to be our goal moving forward. So, Dr. Avril, I'm hoping that you can just let listeners know how we can all best support Reason for Hope and, and get involved with the organization. What's the best way to do that? Sure. I think, you know, I think there's, there's a myriad of ways, I think, you know, from reason for hope, of course, is, is doing a lot of policy and and advocacy. So I think one thing is be, be active in, 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 you know, in advocating and and in politics in your local area. Um, You know, I suppose in, in many ways, the psychedelic medicine effort isn't, isn't necessarily different from other efforts that, you know, definitely get out and vote, vote for your local representatives, your state representatives, your national representatives. Um, And when you see 
bills or policies, when you hear whispers of bills or policies that you think are interesting or important or relating to issues that you are you know, invested in, contact your representatives, let them know that you think those things are important, offer you know, that you could provide written testimony, you know, if you're comfortable that you could provide oral testimony. Um, and absolutely the same on the other side. If you hear of bills or, you know, legislation that feels damaging, destructive, abusive in some way, um, you know, also be vocal about that. Um, in terms of reason for hope, um, I think, you know, if if there are you know, always contact us. We, you know, we, we, we are thinking that we likely will be expanding our footprint as things go forward and, and have, you know, I think built just as we discussed a really incredible team of people who, who at this point yet are all, all doing this, you know, volunteer. Um, but if, if, you know, you happen to be in a state where there is, is legislation, um, you know, we, we always need to have people who are willing to submit written or oral testimony, um, you know, people who are on site in whatever these states are, you know, going and talking to the representatives in person, any of those sorts of things can be really useful. Um, I think though also, you know, psychedelic medicine is one of those things that, that a lot of people still really don't know about or don't know accurate information about perhaps. So I think all of us can certainly play a role in in educating the people around us, including your providers. If you are someone who is engaged in mental health care, ask your provider if they're aware of MDMA or psilocybin as these things are in the pipeline. You know, the, we've, we've said several times and, and other folks, including Nora Volkov at NIDA has said, you know, the, the train has left the station. It, it is not a question of if at this point, but when we will see MDMA and psilocybin um, having FDA approval and, and being something, you know, that, that people could be getting prescribed by their, by their physicians and things. So I think talking with, with our providers saying, you know, is this something that you're aware of getting a sense of what their thoughts are providing, you know, providing information, um, doing any of those things. Um, if you happen to be listening and happen to have, um, you know, a bit of wealth to your name that you're looking to donate to a good cause, you can certainly donate to Reason for Hope. We are, we are actually starting to do a bit of fundraising because, I mean, while we love the work and are very invested in it, we also all have lives and <laughs> responsibilities and, you know, all of these sorts of things and and can only keep, you know, only keep the, the ship afloat for so long on a completely volunteer basis. Um, so, so, yeah, I think there are so many ways. Um, I would say, though, anybody who is interested in, in knowing more or how to be involved, definitely send us, you know, send us an email, contact Brett or I directly. You know, the, the Reason for Hope website does have contact information for us. You know, let us know that you want to be involved. Um, and we, we do have people sort of all across the country that are starting to be involved in various ways. So um, there's, there's definitely a home for folks who you know, 
really whatever your interest is, whatever your skill set is in this space, um, there's definitely ways that you can be involved. There's ways that you can support the effort, whether that's specifically with Reason for Hope or perhaps getting involved with any of the other organizations that that are all doing the same same work. Yeah, we work with. So, I mean, as you know, we work with as many, many different organizations in, in Pennsylvania and Connecticut and New York, all over the place. You know, we, we are happy to support efforts in, in other places and, and to, you know, help drafting legislation or advising on changes that need to be made or, or the policies or, you know, providing testimony. It's, there's a variety of different ways that we, you know, are, are supporting efforts in, in other states and, uh, that, you know, people can get involved in, in stuff that we have, uh, you know, started or have going on. So, yeah, just reach out and and we're, we're always happy to to work with, uh, you know, as many different uh, groups as we can. And I think Connecticut really was a, a, an amazing example of the power of a kind of a, a hearing like Texas. But but it, this was a, you know, a marathon hearing of you know, there were, cause there were different issues. So it was, you know, maybe it took 12 hours, the hearing, but by the end of it, there was, I think maybe 20 something people who testified in support of our bill and, and zero people who opposed it. And they were just floored by the end. I mean, there was no way that a single person could not, and we got a unanimous vote. There's no way a single person could, by the end of that hearing was like, no, this is a bad idea. Uh, it was, you know, not just the, you know, incredible veteran, you know, stories, uh, you know, very powerful stories of people who have, you know, lost loved ones to suicide, to opioid overdose. Uh, the researchers like Dr. Averill and, you know, uh, doctors, uh, clinicians, just all sorts of you know, drug policy reform people, mental health advocates, just such a broad coalition of people who testified. We're incredibly grateful to every single one of them, you know, and the, the organizations they work with. Uh, you know, it really was like an, an amazing grassroots like, uh, team effort there. And, and I, I think that that's, you know, going to be how this really is going to need to move forward everywhere. You know, going to need people in, in every state who are who are involved and, and we're happy to, to help as as much as we can. And so that's reason-for-hope.org to learn more about Reason for Hope. And we want to thank Brett and Dr. Averill for joining us today. Thank you so much for Mental Health Awareness Month. This was a really important discussion. So thank you both so much for your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And as you heard today, we are in a mental health crisis in this country, and we're so grateful for the work that Reason for Hope has been doing in states across the U.S. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of The Vine, a plant media project podcast. For cannabis and psychedelic news, please visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Together, we can end the stigma around plant medicine. Mm-hmm.